But it is good to be with you guys, and uh, it is a privilege to be able to open for you the word of the Lord tonight. Uh, I understand that uh, kind of what you've been doing this semester is uh, talking about how your story as individuals intersects with God's story, Uh, the bigger, uh, the broader story that he is accomplishing in the world, is accomplishing around us right now, has been accomplishing uh, from the beginning of time. And so uh, I think you've looked at kind of Genesis 1, 2, and 3 a lot over the last couple of weeks. Is that right? Have you kind of camped out there? Um, I'm going to springboard off of Genesis 3 this morning. So we're going to kind of still be there. Uh, but we are going to move forward uh, into the New Testament and kind of use that as, as a springboard. Uh, so if you guys will kind of think over the last several weeks Uh, You've probably talked a lot about creation, right? How uh, the world that we live in is a beautiful place. Uh, You're going to get an opportunity real soon to go off to fall conference, enjoy the beauty of God's creation. Uh, A couple weeks ago, after all the rains, my family went up uh, over to Soledad Canyon, and there's a waterfall in Las Cruces. Do you guys know about this? (laughs) A waterfall in the middle of the desert. It's amazing. Um, God is the one who created all this, right? And, uh, and we read in Genesis chapter 1 about how he created all things simply by his word, by speaking into existence. Uh, he put our very first parents, Adam and Eve, into this garden, a perfect paradise, gave them everything that they needed, a uh, relationship with one another, a relationship with him, a relationship uh, a harmonious relationship with creation and everything around them. And it was good. It was good. God looked at what he had made and he said, this is good. He looked at Adam and Eve and he said, this is very good. And, uh, uh, but the world that we live in isn't always a world of beauty, right? Uh, there's also a whole lot of brokenness uh, in our world. Uh, we get excited when we see rain in the desert for six days, right? But the rest of the year, we live in a dry and arid climate. Um, That thing is like putting off heat. (laughs) Like, seriously. I'm going to move away from it. Um, And and, and so, yeah, thanks, Stuart. Oh, oh, you're not even going over there to help me out. (laughs) Keep creeping. Um, But the rest of the year... or. We live in a, in a really dry, arid climate, right? And uh, if you're like me, probably a, a lot of your life is lived in some pretty dry, uh, pretty, pretty weary places. And uh, Genesis chapter 3 tells us where that comes from as well, right? Uh, not only did God create us perfectly, uh, but we fell. Uh, Adam and Eve sinned. They rebelled from their creator. And in that disobedience, through themselves, through all of the rest of creation, through you and I, uh, into a world of sin and misery, a world in which things don't work like they're supposed to work, in which our relationships are difficult and our life doesn't go like we expect it to or want it to. And at the heart of this fall is rebellion. It's men and women who are trying to live their life apart from
from their creator, apart from their one true source of joy and satisfaction. And last week, kind of, Ben kind of uh, talked to you about the fall, and you looked a little bit at Adam and Eve's reaction, right? I mean, do you remember kind of, kind of how they responded? Uh, the serpent comes in with his, his smooth words, his tempting words, begins to get uh, Eve to doubt uh, what God had said. And as soon as they eat of the fruit of the tree, their eyes are opened. But what they recognize is that they're naked. All of a sudden, their life is full of shame. And they hide. They run and they hide from the one they were created to know, from the one who loved them. They run and they hide. The question that I want us to ask tonight is how does God react? How does God respond when he sees his children, when he sees you and I run and hide? Because we recognize that we're sinners. We recognize that there's guilt, there's shame, there's things that we don't want anybody else to see that we don't want him to see. How does God respond? And the shocking thing is that God actually pursues Adam and Eve. He doesn't abandon them. He doesn't leave them. They just rebelled against him. They essentially just said, Lord, God, you created us. You put us in this perfect place, but we're going to do this on our own. We don't need you. Thanks, but no thanks. And God pursues them. You know, some of you may be hiding from God this evening. Hiding because you're unsure how it is that he will react. How will he react to your sin, to your failures, to the things that you're ashamed about? Is he going to react the way that other people in your life have acted? Parents, friends? How will God react to those things that you want to hide from everybody else? And we see this in his response to Adam and Eve. Uh, if, you, if you grab your little cheat here, I see that we have uh, passages printed. That's awesome. Um, we're going to read Genesis 3, 14, and 15, and then we're going to read two passages from the New Testament. I'm going to try uh, in a little bit of time that we have together to kind of weave these three texts together um, and see how God responds. Um, so Genesis 3, 14, and 15, the, the context here is that Adam and Eve have just sinned. They've just eaten of the, of the fruit of the tree, and then they run. They hide. They cover themselves with fig leaves. And God cries out, where are you? And he goes and he looks for his children. And the first thing that he does when he finds them is he speaks to the serpent. He curses the serpent for what he has done. And in the midst of that curse, we find a promise. So that's where we're going to begin 
tonight. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Galatians chapter 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, the seed of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And you, Colossians chapter 2, and you, you were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh. Those are just fancy ways of saying you're a sinner. God made, uh, or sorry, and you, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, that is Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. By this he disarmed the rulers and the authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we thank you not only for the promise that we find all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, but we thank you for your faithfulness in fulfilling this promise for your people. Lord, we do ask that as we consider your word this evening, that you would open our heart, that you would open our minds, that you would open our eyes, that we would see more of your grace and your mercy as it's displayed to us through your son, Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. So, as I mentioned earlier, I'm going up on my 10-year anniversary this week. Very exciting. But the very first house that uh, I moved my wife into when we got married was a tattoo parlor. It wasn't above a tattoo parlor or next to a tattoo parlor. It was a tattoo parlor. So we, uh, we were working at that time about an hour and 15 minutes apart, living in Ohio, getting ready to move in January to St. Louis where I was going to start seminary. So we had like this three-month window to find a house in a really weird location because like we weren't going to quit our jobs for three months before we moved. And so there was like nothing available. So we finally found this one kind of duplex that we could rent. And uh, I went and I checked it out. It was a great price. It looked fine. Except there was carpet squares everywhere. And I didn't think too much of it. You know, I just kind of thought, hey, he's probably showing this to a lot of people. He doesn't want them tracking mud all over the place. So I said, great, we'll take it. He was willing to rent it to us for three months. And uh, then we were free and clear to, to, to move away. Uh, but then when it was time to move in and actually got there, all the carpet squares were still there. Like, there was carpet squares everywhere. It looked like a kindergarten. And I started to pull up the carpet squares, and there was 
paint. Huge blotches of blue and red and purple paint, black everywhere. And so I called the guy and I asked what was with the paint all over the floor. And he said, oh, the, the guy who just moved out, he was running a tattoo parlor out of here. So I'm thinking to myself, I kind of just brought my wife, my new bride, into like a public health hazard. You know, I'm thinking like all of a sudden I'm not seeing paint and ink. I'm seeing like blood, like all over the carpet, thinking this is just terrible. And so I asked the guy, I said, why didn't you clean this up? Why didn't you take care of this? How could you rent us an apartment with tattoo ink and blood and everything else uh, all over the carpet? And he says, I did take care of it. What do you think the carpet squares were for? <laughs> and, and it just stopped me in my tracks. What do you think the carpet squares are for? Really? You know, but, but it kind of, uh, if you think about it, oftentimes we can treat our sin in the exact same way. Oftentimes, we try to take care of our sin simply by throwing a few carpet squares on top. Or sometimes, we actually expect God to deal with our sin this way as well. He can kind of overlook it, right? It's not that big of a deal. We'll just cover it up. He'll just cover it up. He'll brush it under the rug and forget that it isn't there. And God isn't just interested. In fact, God isn't able to just throw a few carpet squares on our sin and pretend like everything's good. If sin was bad breath, as Sid would tell you, that might work. If it was a matter of simply masking the symptoms, handing out breath mints, then that might work. You know, when we love somebody with bad breath, we put up with it, right? Or maybe, like, for their birthday, we give them some, some breath mints. But when we love somebody who's hurting themselves and hurting everybody else around them, we don't love them by putting up with what they do. We don't love someone with a terminal illness, with brain cancer, simply by putting up with their condition. We don't brush it under the carpet and pretend like it's not really there. And in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, you'll see that God promises not to just kind of close his eyes and say, okay, Adam and Eve, I'm going to pretend like you didn't just do that. We'll all get on like it's okay. Because the problem was it wasn't okay. Everything in their life had now been broken. Everything in creation had now been thrown out of whack. And so God just doesn't move towards them and say, you know, the fig leaves were nice and animal skin will be better. Case closed. He comes in to deal with the situation. And he deals with the situation by giving them a promise. A promise actually in the form of a threat to Satan. This is what we saw in Genesis 3, 14 and 15. If you look back down at the text, you'll see that God immediately moves towards the serpent. And he makes a promise. A promise to do something. A promise to solve the problem. 
You know, when you think about Scripture, somebody asks you, what it, what's the Bible all about? What would you say? Is it a rule book? Help us know what to do, what not to do? Is it a textbook that kind of tells us who God is and some fancy things about him? No, no, Ben's been telling you that the Bible, fundamentally, at its core, is actually a story. It's a true story. And it's a story about God's commitment to redeem his people. And so everything else in the entire Bible is really building off of this promise that we see here in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, when God promises to solve the problem. And the rest of Scripture is his unfolding that solution, him being faithful to the promise that he made. And so you'll see that, that this, this curse, what we see in Genesis 3, 14 and 15, three things kind of are in this text. In verse 14... He talks to the serpent, right? To the animal that Satan used for his purposes. And he says to the serpent, you're going to crawl around in your belly for the rest of your life. You're going to be an animal that lives in humiliation compared to the rest of creation. But the heart of it is in verse 15, where he's not just talking to a serpent, to a snake, He's talking to Satan. You know, Revelation 20 tells us exactly who this serpent was. It was the dragon, the ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan. And in verse 15, God curses Satan. And he tells him that there will be enmity between his offspring and the offspring of the woman. The rest of human history will consist of two great lines, the children of God and the children of Satan, the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent, at enmity with one another. And the seed of the serpent is all of natural humanity that Satan led into rebellion. The seed of the woman, on the other hand, are all those who are born again by the Spirit of God, who have been freed from the tyranny of Satan. And the amazing thing about verse 15 is that what God is doing here is he's actually reversing the actions of Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve chose to be friends with Satan and enemies of God. And God moves in and he says, no, no, I will put enmity between you and the woman, the woman will be my friend. Adam and Eve placed themselves in enmity with God, and God chose to reverse, reverse that relationship. But third, in verse 15, and this is really the heart of the passage, he promises that the seed of the woman the offspring of the woman will one day crush the head of the serpent. God promises not only that throughout human history there will be enmity 
between these two lines. But there will be one final and decisive battle between Satan and the seed of the woman. And in this battle, Satan will be defeated. His doom is sure. God promises the outcome from the very beginning. He's promising his people there will be victory. You know, this this scene that we see played out in Genesis chapter 3, that we see played out over the course of human history, it isn't a battle kind of between two equals. A good God and an evil God, a yin and a yang. It's a battle between the creator of the universe and a weak usurper. Somebody who would sneak into the garden in the form of a serpent who would come up to the woman and lie. And God, in this passage, at the very beginning, at the moment that sin enters into creation, says this is how it's going to end. The victory is mine. And you know how I'm going to do it? Satan, you think you're so smart because you crept into the garden You whispered in the woman's ear, and you got her to sin. Well, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to use her to destroy you. Her offspring will crush your head. And so we read through the Old Testament, and we see all these stories about people, right? Um, Starting with Adam and Eve's children, Cain and Abel. And what we see throughout the Old Testament is this story being played out. The enmity between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And we're kind of left throughout the Old Testament asking, where is this seed? Who is this offspring? Is it Cain? Is it Abel? Is it Seth? Is it Abraham? Maybe it's Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. David, Solomon. And every single one of these stories presents us with people. People who aren't very different than you and I. And people who at the end of the day demonstrate that they're not the promised one. They're men and they're women who fall victim to the same temptation of the evil one. And so as Satan appears to have his day, as we read through the course of the Old Testament, we wonder, who is this promised seed? Who is this passage talking about? And ultimately, how? How does he crush the head of the serpent? Well, in Galatians chapter 4, we're told exactly who this is. Paul says, but when the fullness of time had come, at just the right moment, the point at the moment that God had appointed from before the foundation of the earth, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Genesis 3.15 is the very first 
prophecy, the very first promise that we see that God will send a Messiah. And we don't really know much about the Messiah at this point. We know that he's going to be a human. He's going to be the the offspring of the woman. And we know that he's going to defeat Satan. And as the Old Testament progresses, our view of who the Messiah will be, what he'll do, continues to expand. We learn more and more about him. Until finally, we arrive in the New Testament and we discover who he is. Not just a daughter of Eve, not just the son of Mary, but the very daughter, the very son of God. And we see throughout Jesus' entire life, this battle that's described in Genesis 3.15 is taking place, right? What is the very first thing that Satan tries to do when, when Jesus is born? He puts it into the heart of Herod to slaughter every child, every child. Satan is after this child. Joseph and Mary flee to Egypt. They're safe. Jesus returns. Age of 30, he begins his public ministry. Immediately, he goes out into the wilderness. For 40 days, he fasts. And at the end of that time, who's there? Satan. To test him. To tempt him. To speak the exact same lies that he spoke to Adam and Eve, the exact same lies that he speaks to every single one of us. And what is it that Jesus does? Does he listen to the voice of the serpent? No. He believes the voice of his father. He listens to the voice of the Lord. But the ultimate victory kind of the pinnacle of this battle comes when we're told that Satan entered into the heart of Judas Iscariot, right? So all throughout this Jesus' ministry, we see Satan conniving, plotting, finally enters the heart of Judas Iscariot. He thinks, I got it. This is it. The hook is set. Judas betrays Jesus into the hands of the religious leaders He's arrested, he's mocked, he's beaten, he's crucified on a Roman cross. He's led out of the city and he dies. This appears to be the moment of Satan's victory. But that's not the end of the story, is it? On the third day, he, Jesus rises again. It appears that Satan has won, that the cosmic battle that's been waging all the way back since Genesis chapter 3 had ended in Satan's victory. But on the third day, we learn differently. All that Satan was able to do in that moment was bruise the heel of this seed. And in effect, through Jesus' death and resurrection, Satan himself was crushed. So this brings to the second question. How? How does death on the cross and resurrection from the grave crush the head of this serpent? 
How does this lead to Satan's defeat? What happened on the cross? Christ took the guilt of his people's sin. The guilt of our sin was laid on Jesus. And on the cross, he paid the penalty of that sin in its full. And here's why that death is so important. Because remember, who is Satan? He's not just the tempter. He's not just the liar. But Scripture presents him as the accuser. So he doesn't just come and tempt us to do things, right? But the moment we fall, the moment that Adam and Eve fall, he's there to point the finger. He's the accuser. You know, I I was talking earlier about my kids, my my two little four-year-olds. It's amazing. They play both of these roles, right? They bait one another into doing exactly what they're not supposed to do. And for what purpose? It's because as soon as the other person takes the bait, they run into the house. Mommy, mommy, mommy. Jonah just kicked the dog. (laughs) Hannah just punched me in the face. Jonah's in the streets. Right? It's not just about the temptation. It's about that opportunity to accuse. And throughout Scripture, that's who Satan is. He's the accuser. He's the one who, as soon as he tempts us, as soon as he whispers in our ear and makes those promises, runs to God. Like a deadly toddler. He runs to God and he's saying, see, see, look at your children, God. Look at your people. Look what they do. Look how much they love the world. Look how much they run to sin. Look whose side they're really on. They don't listen to you. They don't love you. They don't deserve anything from you. And he doesn't just accuse us before the Father, right? He accuses us to our very hearts. These are the lies that he throws into our hearts. Look at who you are. Look at what you've done. Do you think that God could really love you? Do you think that anybody in the entire world would really love you? If they knew who you were, because I know who you are, that's the accuser at work. That's Satan at its its finest. The only true weapon that Satan has, the only eternal weapon that he has over us, is his ability to accuse. And that's the very thing that was taken away at the cross. That's what Genesis 3 is about. That's the defeat. Jesus took away his power to accuse. The the decisive blow for Satan came when he could no longer accuse God's people of sin. 
When Christ died on the cross, Satan was completely disarmed. This is what we see in Genesis, or rather Colossians 2.13. You who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive together with him, that's Jesus, having forgiven us all of our trespasses. How were those trespasses forgiven? By canceling the record of the debt that stood against us with its legal demands, these he set aside, nailing them to the cross. By this he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, that is Satan and all of his minions, and he put them to open shame by triumphing over them at the cross. Satan can't accuse. He can't accuse God's people of anything. Of anything. Anything. Anything that you've done in the past, anything that you'll do in the future, if you have placed your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, Satan's only weapon is taken away. He can't accuse you. There is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Because every single one of those sins, the guilt and the shame that you bear for every single one of them, has been removed. It's been nailed to the cross. We think we need carpet squares, fig leaves, because we don't believe that this could actually be true, that this could actually be possible, that there is nothing, there is nothing that you have to be ashamed of before the Lord. Because the guilt of that sin that decision, that action, whatever it was, it's paid for. It's gone. God accepts us exactly the way we are. We place our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the power of the gospel. That's how God sets about undoing the work of the serpent, the work of Satan, by taking away the one thing that he's able to do, accuse you of sin. Because at the cross, the guilt of that sin was perfectly and and eternally paid for. It's gone. It's removed. And the amazing thing is, as we begin in Genesis chapter 3, that we recognize that God went into this, God went into this work of redemption knowing full well what it, would, what it would cost. From the beginning, this wasn't just the seed of the woman. This was his very own son. 
when he went looking for Adam and Eve in the garden, pursuing them in the midst of their rebellion. He knew in that moment what he was getting in for. This wasn't just going to be a carpet square or two. He was going to redeem his people at the cost of his very own son. Will you pray with me? Lord God, we do thank you for the amazing love that you have shown us in sending your son to die for us. We thank you that even here at the very beginning of Scripture, we see your commitment to redeem, your commitment to release us from slavery to sin and Satan. And Lord, we do pray that you would draw our eyes to your Son, Jesus, this evening. Lord, that you would help us to rest in his work, to all that he has accomplished on the cross. And we ask this for his glory. Amen.